in the movie, The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya, hoping for a miracle, carries his friend Wesley, whom he believes to be dead, and lays him on a table before Miracle Max. Miracle Max asks Wesley a question. Inigo responds, he's dead. He can't talk. To which Miracle Max replies, oh, 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 look who knows so much. Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. That's good news for me this morning. And it gives me great hope, not because Miracle Max says it, because it's what we read in the Word of God. The prophet Isaiah writes, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You see, mostly dead is slightly alive. So important is it that Matthew in his gospel tells us the same truth. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You see, mostly dead is slightly alive. At times, spiritually, and even physically speaking, you and I can feel mostly dead and only slightly alive as we carry ourselves in to the Lord's Day worship. Six days in this world can almost beat the life out of us. And God's people said, sometimes we just choose to do something else and not go to worship at all. Well, you might choose that. I can't choose that. Maybe you wish I would choose that. Don't respond. Sometimes when we do go, worship seems dry and mostly dead, so distracted and so disengaged and rote that, that we faintly hear in our own ears the words of Jesus when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Well, here's the good news. Seeing the glory of Jesus in worship changes everything. God has designed worship, corporate worship, so that when the magnified glories of Christ are on display, our souls are filled with life. We straighten up. The flame burns brighter. No matter what feelings describe us when we walk into this room, the Psalms describe for us the whole range of feelings you and I might have. Brokenness of heart and contrition, repentance, sorrow, longing, desire, fear, awe, gratitude, joy, hope. All of these feelings, whatever you're feeling, whatever I'm feeling this morning, they're either enhanced by or changed by or brought into their proper place by seeing Jesus in worship. Therefore, you and I, we must be devoted to worship together so that our slightly alive spirits are filled with life. 
And I ask you now, if you will turn once again in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. And when you've found your place, let's stand together as we hear read together the word of the living God. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth And under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be a blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is simple this morning. That is that once again, you would prove yourself faithful to us. You promised that where Your word is read and heard, and that place is blessing, so bless us. Now we pray according to your will for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I ask you to look again at verse 8. And we read there that when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they all sang a new song. So this week we add to the bowls, the golden bowls that contain our prayers, the harps that carry our worship and our praise. Prayer and praise. These two are powerful, unstoppable partners. The harps in this vision, as they do throughout Scripture, represent worship. And each of the elders has his own harp, and with them they accompany these powerful, theologically rich songs of praise sung first by the elders and the creatures, and then by the myriad of angels, and then by all of creation. Worthy are you. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. How glorious 
is the worship in heaven. And little wonder, Psalm 22 tells us, Oh my God, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. See, this is why worship brings life. God is enthroned in praise. He sits in the midst of it. He remains there. He dwells in it. He lives in it. And where God is, there must by necessity be life. Where God is, there must by necessity be life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? This is why praise and worship can bring full life back to the slightly alive. What an encouragement then that Jesus gives John. This vision of worship with the harps and the songs of heaven. Now the next sentence you were supposed to hear was going to be this. Now we are going to look at a few principles, principles, plural, of worship. But instead you're going to hear, now this morning we're going to look at one principle of worship. It's all we have time for. And this one principle comes not so much from the vision before us, but instead from the context of the life of the Apostle John, the one to whom the Lord Jesus gave this vision. And here's the principle. The Lord's Day worship of our great God deserves our devotion. We should be neither deterred nor distracted from it. Before we begin with this principle, please hear me. This is not intended to produce guilt, but life. Listen, I've been doing this, and by this I mean preaching, for almost 30 years. And I know the way it goes. People exegete the preacher. They read between the lines. People try to figure out what was he really trying to say. Well, let me just be plain and tell you straight up so you don't have to guess. What I'm really saying is that worship is a blessing. Worship is restorative. Worship is transformative. Worship is soul-refreshing and life-giving, period. What I have to say this morning has nothing to do with getting more people in the pews. That's so 2020 for me. I got over that a long time ago. The Lord will bring whom he will. And besides, if that had been my goal, I certainly wouldn't have preached this Sunday, the sermon on Memorial Day, knowing that half the congregation wouldn't be here. This is not about getting more money in the offering bag. You know, more people, more money. No, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The wealth in every land, he's got us, he will provide. This is about taking care of your soul. And therefore taking better care of the souls that the Lord has entrusted to your care. It's about standing again. When life has almost bent us to the ground, it's about bringing into full flame the candle that life has reduced to a smoldering flicker. It's about blessing your soul 
and seeking and seeing the glory of God and his Christ in worship through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so I'll repeat once again the principle. The Lord's Day worship of our great God deserves our devotion. We should be neither deterred nor distracted from it. Now here are a few facts about the Apostle John's life. When he saw this vision that will vividly illustrate this principle. Fact one is that John was over 90 years old when he receives this vision. An old man by any standard, particularly the standards of the first century. Life is over for him. He should just be waiting to die. Fact two. John was on the island of Patmos when he had this vision. Patmos was no island retreat with palm trees swaying and someone bringing you those cute little drinks with umbrellas in them. Instead, Patmos was a bleak 10 miles long stretch of volcanic, rocky, mostly treeless barrenness. Fact three, the island of Patmos was a penal colony. People were sent there as a punishment. John was being punished. According to his own testimony in Revelation 1.9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he's being punished for preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fact four, because he is in exile, he is cut off from the church, from all other believers, from his church family back on the mainland. He must be lonely. A loneliness that's only made deeper by the fact that for many years, John is the sole surviving apostle. All those with whom he had this unique relationship and experience with Jesus, all of his intimate friends who could really get John and whom John really got, they're all gone. They're with the Lord. Who knows, perhaps they are among the 24 elders that John sees worshiping in this vision. So John feels a deep loneliness. Fact five, the exile is difficult for John. He tells us again in chapter one, verse nine, he calls himself a partner in tribulation, which he must endure patiently. Because tribulation is a bit of a churchy word, let me give you its full weight. By saying that tribulation literally means to press or to squash. Tribulation is trouble. Trouble that inflicts distress. Tribulation is oppression. It's affliction. And that's what this old man is experiencing. The early church claimed that John had to do hard labor in the marble quarries on this island while he was captive there. Now, when we consider all these facts, it would not be unusual for those of us in our comfort culture To excuse John from worship as we so easily excuse ourselves. 
John's old and tired. Just let him be. Let him rest. Worship is not that important. In our therapeutic culture, we might excuse John from worship because he was emotionally and mentally and perhaps even spiritually exhausted. In our blame culture, we might say John is justified in being bitter, even angry at God to be this old and have to live like this. How easy it would be for John to say following Christ is not worth it. Not if this is what it cost. Not if this is God, how God treats you after so many years of faithful service. Why should I worship God? John could have produced a litany of reasons for not worshiping on the Lord's day. But here's the good news. John did not produce such a list. No circumstance, no emotion, neither age nor fatigue could hinder John from worship. He's devoted to worship. He will be neither deterred nor distracted from it. Not because John is a legalist about worship. Not because John has to worship or feels obligated to worship, but because he feels guilty if he doesn't do it. No, he worships because he knows that he'll see Jesus, his Lord, his Savior, his friend when he worships. And seeing Jesus always changes everything. John knows that worship is life-giving and restorative, so nothing will deter him from it. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So the actions and behavior of John on the island of Patmos speak these words, Woe to me if I do not worship Christ. And so it's no surprise then that we read in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. When the Lord's day came around, John was going to worship. Now look, I know how easy it is to dismiss all of this and say, well, of course. John was an apostle. We have set the apostles aside, and rightly so. Jesus set them aside. But Jesus set them aside specific to and not other than. In other words, he set them aside and he, he gifted them and he equipped them for this particular office of apostle. An office no one else has ever had, an office that no one else will ever have. So they are separate from us in that, but they are not other than we are. I can't speak for John. But I do wonder this, if he were with us this morning. I wonder if John would remind us how alike we are so that we too would view worship as he does. I wonder if he would tell us of the time that in his, in his harshness and brashness and anger, he, John, this son of thunder, as Jesus named him, asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume this village that refused to welcome Jesus. John might tell us of the ugliness of the pride and the greed and the ambition and the need for power and position that drove him to go along with his brother James privately to Jesus and say, grant us to sit, one on your 
right hand and one on your left in your glory. He might remind us of the shame he felt when Jesus, his very best friend, asked John, watch and pray with me. On the night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus' own soul was in agony. And when he prayed and drops of sweat appeared on him. John, pray with me. Instead, Jesus found John asleep. John failed his friend when Jesus needed his friend most. And so John is not so unlike you and me. But perhaps he isn't unlike us in this. He believes deeply in the transforming, restorative, life-giving, soul-refreshing power of the worship of Christ. And so though he had what we would call every reason not to worship, he did worship because seeing Jesus changes everything. It takes those who are slightly alive and makes them fully alive. John might have drugged his old, almost lifeless body and weary spirit to the time of worship on the Lord's day, but listen to what happened on this day of worship. John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the churches. Look at what happened when John worshiped. What he saw And what he experienced caused his soul to come alive in an unexpected way. Look, it's not as if the Lord said to John ahead of time, John, I know that thou art tired and weary and sorely afflicted, but be faithful in worship this morning or this coming Lord's day, and I will give to you the book of Revelation. God didn't say that. John just worshiped, and he left the results of that worship with God. And surprise, look what the Lord did. The book of Revelation, how beautiful, how unexpected. Listen, brothers, sisters, what unexpected things might God do in us and through us and for us as we worship? What surprises might he have? What blessings for us? What blessings might he have for others through us? Because we're devoted to worship. John worshiped. And we're blessed with the book of Revelation. The record this book is of the things that John saw and heard on that Lord's Day worship are the very sights and the very sounds that put back Life into our weary, slightly alive souls. Listen, if John had not worshiped on the Lord's day, we would not know that we are overcomers, that even now we overcome in this life by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We would not know if John had not worshiped on this day that our enemy will finally and completely be destroyed. Never again will he be able to steal or kill or destroy or distort 
or disfigure or deform the very things that he seeks to do every day in your life and mine and in the lives of others. We would not know if John had not worshipped on this day. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And God's people said, we would not know that one day, had John not worshipped, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. We would not know that God would one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. We would not know that one day death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. We would not know that one day there will be no more night with all its shadows and all its terrors. We would not know that one day there will be no more need for the sun, because the glory of God and the light that is Christ in all his resplendent glory, that will be the only light we need. We would not know if John had not worshipped that there is a feast coming for us, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We would not know that we will sit there with Jesus. We would not know that we will be joined at that table by people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and race. We would not know that there's a river of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. We would not know of the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. We would not know that one day, one day, one day, we will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. People of God, is that good news? Is it? We wouldn't know it if John hadn't worshipped. But we do know. And we're filled with hope and we're filled with life because John bothered to worship on the Lord's day. I say to us, I can scarcely imagine why we would not be devoted to Lord's day worship, why anything would deter us from it, why we would allow lesser things Non-life-giving things, things that deplete us and ultimately disappoint instead of restore us. Things that end in emptiness instead of fullness. Why would we ever let those things deter us or distract us from being devoted to the Lord's Day worship of our great God? Worship is life-giving. Did I mention that? (laughs) Worship is life-giving. When we think it's the very last thing our weary, slightly alive bodies need, know that it's the first thing that our weary, slightly alive bodies need. It's the best thing they need. To come together around the means of grace, the word of God, prayer, the table of God, to lift our voices, to speak out, and to sing out the praise and worship of our glorious God. This will fan the flicker into a flame. This will fill our slightly alive spirits with life, Christ's life. Life then that we can share with others so that they might too have life and become worshipers of Christ. And who knows, who knows what unexpected things the Lord might do in us and through us individually and together as a body as we worship him. Let's 
be devoted. Let's not be deterred or distracted from Lord's Day worship. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer. So many different people in this place, so many different feelings and emotions and attitudes toward worship. I just pray, Lord, that as we've seen through your word, this beautiful picture of worship, that we would be drawn to it. Drawn to it. That we would seek desperately the life that you give to us through it. So we might be devoted to worship with each other on every Lord's Day that you grant us life. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.